0: So I was thinking about it. This is the first time we're doing one of these, I think, since probably about the summer of 2019. um, That we've had a chance to kind of just have a a few moments, uh, revive these podcasts that we would do for the regions and for the participants to kind of help with their learning and to help spark conversation at the local level uh, and throughout the summer. and so, you know, Ernesto, I think one of the things that we've been talking about recently is what exactly, um, what is the great debate? Like, why, Why? how did this whole thing come about? Um, I think it's important sometimes, you know, we get into the tournament day one and we, we don't pause to take a moment to learn. How did this whole thing get started? This great debate experience that um, some of the students have just started embarking on.
1: Well, it has its roots. Just like everything else, you know, I'm a frustrated educator. You know that already. And uh, back before 1985, which is a long, doggone time ago, a lot of the kids that were going to UT or not able to get into UT uh, were complaining about barely missing out. In other words, it. If you required 1100 back then, back then, they were barely missing it with 1050s, 1040s and therefore not being able to get to gain admission. And it was always, always low, lower scores than they wanted on the verbal part. And so, and the ongoing discussions that always take place at NHI, the idea was how do we improve the language proficiency of young people? You know, how do we increase reading? How do we increase? ideas, and abstract thinking, and inquiry kinds of issues. And how do we engage them where they have to articulate and express and use words in a different way in a different context? So in 1985 at Southwestern, we decided we're going to do a a great debate. And there were three teams that came in just to test out the theory. The format was very different. But anyway, long story short, goes from there to 1989 at St. Mary's. We feel we have a winner, and off we went into space. And today, we're all over the United States, as you well as as you well know.
0: Where did now, this be, Now, where did this become part of the the leadership the aspect? Because I know one of the examples you gave, obviously, is the testing and the scores and the, and kind of the skills. But how did this become the kind of the the integral base experience for developing or? Giving experiences for a young future civic and community leader to kind of start on their journey of learning and growth and development.
1: Well, you know, NHI has had to learn Julio just like everybody else has. You know, my idea of moving forward was how do you plug in to the professional class of the United States? Because we didn't have enough Latinos eh? at the working class, yes, but not at the professional class. And those that were moving into the professional class vis-a-vis college degrees were going into jobs, entry-level jobs, mid, mid, middle, mid-management middle, jobs, and being frustrated a lot with race relations and cultural conflict, things of that nature. And so they were complaining a lot, and rightfully so. So the idea was, was uh, how do we address those issues? And so NHI began more like a Value crossover training programs and how how do you fit into a mainstream world a mainstream society and how do you navigate effectively in that world? Well, what we found out that that wasn't the only issue. You know, being able to operate in a larger context of a mainstream professional class means that you fit into pre-structured uh, systems. And the idea is for you to familiarize yourself. With how do you fit into those systems, and how do you navigate those systems without ever thinking, "What about how do we foster development into our own systems? How do we create a world of our own?" And it's evolutionary for NHI because it's it's something we should we should have considered a long time ago. We've considered it more over the last 15 years, 20 years. You know, we're talking about a history here of 40 years. Which is a long time of discussion and analysis and feedback and evaluation. Well, the idea was, how do you create an imagined world? Until we realized that NHI is an imagined, is an imagined world, is an imagined concept. There wasn't an NHI before, and we tried to fit it or to redefine it or repurpose it. No, we had to imagine a world to ourselves. How do we design? something for which we are the imagineers, we are the social engineers, we're the people structuring Latinos in the 21st century. What does that look like? And when you start playing around with concepts like that from a leadership perspective, you begin to come up with new ideas and new possibilities. So we begin to feel the great debate offers a great entry level opportunity for NHI for young people to see themselves in an imagined
0: future. You know, you said, of course, the Great Debate has its roots, like you said, in, in the Young Leaders Conference. It, it's decades of history. What makes it unique or or distinct when you, when you look at other communications programs or debate experiences or uh, even Latino leadership uh, programs? What makes the Great Debate kind of a, a space in of in and of its own. Because I think it's important for students to know yeah. the game they're playing, the the experience they're gonna have, uh, the organization they're joining as first year members.
1: We are two, we're a very different, we're a very different animal than most leadership conferences, especially for Latinos that are event driven weekends, format wise, do a lot of listening. I mean, they're good programs. I'm not knocking them. But they don't evolve. They don't, at least in my way of thinking, they don't involve and advance the thinking of young. We had to find a way of activating young people to be the primary actors in their own self-development. Now that's hard to do, so we had to invent and imagine ways in which we could do that and put them in a position to where they have to think beyond. You know, what does it take to? comply with or fit into an existing system? How do you design something else? How do, how, what is, how do we see ourselves as Latinos in the 21st century context? What does that mean as we move population-wise to become one in three Americans by the year 2050, which is around the corner, by the way? You know, how do we foster our own world? We're not going to nest, just naturally assimilate. We're too large for that. So we have to create our own realities, our own social cultures, our own understanding of the world around us and be informed and see it as an attractive and then learn something else. We learn to navigate two simultaneous systems. Being able to live in a Spanish-speaking. When you look at Latinos, we can no longer define ourselves as minorities, as people of color. We're a global culture, 23 countries. That's a different reality. So what does it take to train a young person to see themselves in that context and in a positive way? Well, that requires exchange of ideas. That requires letting go of old concepts. That requires experimenting with new ideas, new possibilities. And children, because they're so flexible, they're not stuck in their ways, are the best candidates possible to see themselves in a different light or at least articulate possibilities. The same way that my generation only talked about space travel, but we didn't know what space travel was really like, we just talked about it. We imagined spaceships. Well, that's very different than today. My young son, my young grandson, Borja, will actually likely travel in a space jet somewhere in his lifetime, He's six years old right now. So he'll have to adjust his whole vernacular, his whole concept of life to include space. It's the same way with cultures to help young people foster a different culture in the Latino community, and use words and concepts and ideas of what that's about. That becomes a, a living experience, which is very important. One thing is to read about it, and the other thing is to articulate it and to get yourself into the, and so we, as you all well know, we come up with concepts that may compete against each other to test the, uh, the, the, the young person's ability to formulate and construct new ideas and express themselves in new
0: ways. My next question, or where I wanted to to go with this conversation, what end up being some, to you, some of the goals, some of the outcomes that we want uh, or that students should expect from this program from start to finish. We obviously have some groups, right, that are doing the community-based local experience with the four-day tournament. And then we have other students that, we'll have it kind of in an intensive six-day what we call the six-day great debate. But what are some of the goals now that you've I think you've helped understand the history, the purpose, what are now some of the kind of goals and skills that that we're looking to to work on?
1: Well, first of all there's the 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 experience of personal development. For a young kid that's 14, 50 years old, 15 years old, that means poise, articulation, you know, presentation style, communication style, developing their learning their listening skills, their analytical skills, finding weaknesses in the arguments of others, knowing how to ask deep and profound questions. Those are basic skills in communication that we need to continue to emphasize. You know, what, what, when you're in an argumentative uh, position, what do you look for? And then when you're given the microphone or you're given the space or you're given the time to speak, you know, how do you make good use of time? How do you explain your ideas correctly? How do you become a convincing person? How do you modulate your voice back and forth? To Those are all technical skills in communication. So that's number one. We want them to really improve their poise, their self confidence, their ability to think active be active thinkers, an active expression, people who actively express express their ideas. So that's number one. So that's that's the four day and the six day. They have practice sessions. We give them tough topics to look at. So then we elevate their thinking. They're not memorizing. I'm not against memorizing things of that nature, but in our world we're constructionists, we're imagineers. You don't memorize, you don't copy what's already been done. You invent, you create, right? So they have to have that experience. So you throw the abstract at them. What do you and, think? And of- I, th-
0: I actually think that, that, you know, now with my own, my own eight year old, uh, who like Borja is, is living in a different universe, but still, you know, is gonna learn and develop these skills. I think it's just like just like what you were saying like this thinking in the abstract there's a lot of concrete learning that takes place in the school uh in certain religious communities depending what you're at like these are the these are the rules these are the orders these are the beliefs um you know whether it's biology the constitution right. current events um so what I what I end up finding is that as I get old, how NHI, that abstract thinking really just complemented my, my learning and my approach to just normal things, because I, can, I know how to do the research and the concrete and the fact-finding, but there's a lot of situations in your life, just, just in life, that are more abstract or that have no concrete Google search, right? There's no Siri that can give you the answer, and I, I like how the great debate plays in that world. Great debate
1: is very much about Socratic learning style. You know that, where you grab, literally grabbed out of the thin air, questions, questions and possibilities, and so inquiry becomes very important. The use of logic, and that's why I don't necessarily uh, admire uh, anybody who's training our kids that wants them to memorize as as an answer to to an inquiry. We want young kids to try to construct knowledge, put ideas together, see if they fit together, practice that kind of thinking, and and, and then try to put it into a construct and express it and make logic and reasonable and draw reasonable conclusions. That's classic style of learning. And we don't have enough of it in today's world where we're teaching people how to just fit into society because everything has been pre-engineered most everything has been pre-engineered, and what you need to know is how to how to how to operate responsibly within pre-structured systems, and how to how to memorize processes and procedures and timetables and manage time to come up with an end product of some form. At least in my world, in my way of thinking, this is this is what young people. So I want parents to know what they're buying. They were they're they're buying into a child becoming a thought leader, a thought person, a thought analyst that's going to be far superior in the future as we get into the actual future of having to construct new ways of thinking because we are modernizing the world. all the thoughts always trying to improve itself. And there are certain things that exist in systems just don't fit into. You know, AI is a good example. Artificial intelligence, because we may find ways to to computerize or ways of engineering systems that provide far-reaching answers to to complex questions, but on the other hand, we may disemploy millions of people. So we have to think about well, what do you do with people who no longer have jobs, no longer have functions? How do you reformulate societies? Maybe 200 years from now, maybe 300 years from now. But how do you how how do you begin to join in intellectually in that journey. Let me give you another example, Latinos. How can we possibly claim to be minorities when we're going to be such a huge population consisting of 23 countries? What is the new vernacular? How do we interact with each other? How do we relate to one another? How do we find common ground? How How do we do those things? How do we make this emerging reality applicable to everyday practice. We've never done that before.
0: Well, We're divided even, by even, countries. Even you start just the nature of the, of the concept of the, of the word community, right? That has different, sometimes non-regional, non-geographic understandings, right? The NHI community is a transnational, you know, digital and personal community communities of the future look like and what are they rooted in are they rooted in a value system uh in a shared vision or is it strictly last names and you know dna reports i, I think those are some of the questions we're going to encounter more and more and
1: and, and american society is also moving towards other kinds of communities right you know, and and it's just not biological it's just not family It's just not ethnic it's just not na- We've got other communities now. We have engineering communities. We have social communities. We have political communities. We have all kinds of communities in today. And our young people are having to learn how to navigate all of those communities simultaneously developing their own identity. That's a t- I didn't have to face that. I grew up in Houston in Navarro. barrio. My grandmother lived down the street, my tía down the road. You know, we got together on weekends. That's gone. That kind of life is gone. I have to go create new communities. NHI requires that kids uh, formulate or create or foster the development of new communities that are transnational now. I get a kick out of my granddaughter, some of them, going to go be with people in Panama. I couldn't even get across town in Houston growing up, much less get in a plane and go spend a week with friends in Panama. So the world is very different and, and we must, not allow our community to stay behind, or not equip it with the skills. Now, I wanna make sure that that not all of that is happening just through NHI. That's happening around the world. And what we're doing is merely participating in a change process that's affecting us all every day of our lives. What we don't wanna do is get left out as, 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 as Former Governor Ann Richards said one day, you're either at the table or you're on the menu. We don't want to get eaten up by other influences to the extent that we have no defense. We just work to fit in. And fitting in has been our history over the last, throughout the 20th century. Just figuring out how to fit into the more abundant community of America, because we haven't been part of that for over 100 years.
0: Walk me through the four, four types of debate that even though students will eventually, right, they'll get sorted out into different categories and events for competition, uh, the intent and the spirit of it is that they're, they get exposed and, and play with at least, at least all four styles. And why, what are the four styles and why are they each unique and important to a leader's development? Start I'm off with the oratory.
1: I'm going to answer that in a crazy way. I get a kick out of moms who are so innovative and creative when they're giving their kids toys all the time. And toys educate a child. It allows them to examine and smell and taste. And What we're doing at NHI, we're working with a lot of young kids. I mean, they're beautiful young kids, beautiful young souls. And we're giving them social toys to play with and gain meaning from. So the great debate is a big, giant social toy. I want mom and dads to understand that. I want the kids to understand this is meant to be fun. You know. Enjoy the creativity opportunity. So in this specific case of The Great Debate, they get four toys, and they're all related to argumentative communications or competitive communications, it's comparing ideas and competing the one-upsmanship of who has a better idea than the other. So in those instances, we want them to become familiar with four styles of argumentation. One is cross-examination. Two is mock trial. We use mock trial as a toy. Three is oratory. And four, no, extemporaneous extempore. speaking. But anyway, each one is unique in its own way. Each one has a different function. And it's very important for students and parents. I'm talking to parents, not, not the coaches so much because they want to win. They want to, you know, my kids want to get up there and pull out their swords and slay the dragon. And that's cool too, you know, that's, I, I enjoy all of it, and so it's 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 a game of slay the dragon. Well, make sure that it's not it doesn't get that serious. But in in, in cross examination debate, it's the idea of, of 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 raising questions about an established practice or policy. And I'm going to give an example: the practice of when can you drive a car? Let's just say that in kids, in today's world, at the age of sixteen, they're getting their driver's license. At least I think they are. Sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. In a lot years of old. states.
0: In a lot well, of states. Yeah.
1: Some people will argue that that's too young. Other people will argue it's it's, it's old enough. They're mature enough. Well, the idea of cross examination debate is to look at the established policy or the practice, saying. In this state, we allow a child to get a driver's license at 16 years of age. The affirmative attempts to understand the rationale for that policy with the intent of identifying weaknesses in the the statement or weaknesses in the practice to the extent that it forces the possibility of changing the age limit from 16 maybe to another older age limit. But the idea is not to attack the policy. The idea is to understand it clearly from the standpoint of its weaknesses and wait for the opportunity for closing out the argument to iterate or reiterate the inherent weaknesses that went into establishing a 16-year-old uh, 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 ceiling for for children to get or young people to get a driver's
0: license. And, and so I guess is, when the, you say attack, you mean are you meaning Point out. Break it down. Are you meaning like proposing another counter policy?
1: No, you don't propose a counter policy. What you want to do is, is show the weakness, the injury and the scope of injury and weakness that would drive someone to conclude that this policy as it currently exists has to be changed. But you don't want to you don't want to attack the policy by saying it's no good. It's it's going to hurt people. and You're going to provide evidence about why it's going to hurt people. You want to understand the rationale for the existence of the policy from the standpoint of its weaknesses and from the standpoint of its potential for causing injury and harm. That's, that's the entire thing. So the, the, the lead of the affirmative. The, the affirmative support person that is not to reinforce the position of the affirmative but to collect data on the cross-examination presentation on the existing policy. I know that sounds confusing. So they can take, you know, what you want to do if you're the lead for the, including a statement, the affirmative can point out the extent of injury and harm that represents the rationale for
0: change. It's yeah. very important. The rationale for change, you know, we're, to connect with where I wanted, where I think we we wanted this conversation to go, and you've been a leader not just of NHI, of course, right? And of course, students are going to read some of your your own stories of leadership um, with the federal government as an educator, as a coach, right? Um, where does this come into play? You know this this art of looking at a resolution. Uh, or a potential proposal for change, or making the case for change. Like where where is this going to come into play to these future leaders? This this skill, the use of the skill. I don't know that well, we ever talk about
1: that. It's it's generally applied in everyday life. I mean, if you look at why we disagree and agree, and the reasons and the categories of agreement and different different agreement, we do it every day. We use we use mostly passion to try to argue. You know, almost like oratory, we 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 use passion and logic to to point out a point of view or to underscore or emphasize a point of view versus something that may exist uh, that we like or don't like, either we support something passionately or we oppose it passionately. The point is that there are things that societies and communities feel passionately about. But to be very specific, as you get older and you, you're going to become a policy maker or sit at a policy table, there's going to be instances in which the differences between an, an argument versus a uh, the current practice and an argument against that is very subtle. And if you're not careful about how you argue, you may be arguing for the devil and not even know it. So you have to be highly analytical, not in not in not in confronting somebody with a counter argument, but asking the kinds of questions that allow the statement being reviewed to reveal its weaknesses. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez learned that at NHI. And people point out how, how well she raises questions. Well, that's one of the reasons she's able to not Dispute the argument, but find weaknesses in the arguments to where the people that are practicing the policy cannot defend it, and that's the key. So you're going to use
0: that. And you know, and I and I feel that in a, in a weird way, as you, as I'm listening as you're talking, that I feel like there's a desire among young people to to want to be able to do that effectively, like that there's this desire for for truth and to be real and to kind of cut out. All the all the exaggeration, all the color, all the politics. One of the ways to do that, like you said, to slay that dragon, um, is by knowing this type of skill set. Is to be able to ask the question that pops pops the balloon versus the bubble, um, and gets to the core. Or or is there no? Perhaps there is no core. Perhaps rationale for change. There is no rationale, right? Because that could be another conclusion of these types of arguments.
1: And you don't have it's... to get hot under the collar to to make no. a point.
0: No, no. It's One itself. question.
1: A well placed question can disarm a counter argument in a minute, in a in a second. And so we want young people to argue in their behalf, to argue for their own future. You know, to 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 know how to how to take a point of discussion and evaluate it from the standpoint of its implications, of its meaning, of its possibilities, and be able to ask questions that uncover and reveal the real intent. And I hate to use an old old example, but this is where I begin to get involved in this kind of communication, the idea of the draft, serving your country. I respect people who feel that way, I really do. Two of my brothers went to the military, so it's within the context of my family culture. But who went into the draft was very different from who didn't go into the draft. We could argue for higher education as a reason for remaining out of the draft. And many people with the resources to do that were able to use that rationale as a reason for not going into the draft, while those who didn't have the resources could not argue that point and were drafted and tragically killed or hurt or maimed for the rest of their lives. But it has nothing to do with defending the country, it has to do with a policy. And Vietnam was one of the most controversial policies regarding the draft in American history. So if you know how to raise the question, and discombobulate the argument or the rationale that's being used. You're ahead of the game. So it's very, it's very important. It's very important that young people begin to learn that art form. So when you go into something like the next step, which is which is the mock trial, all of a sudden, that alters the method of argumentation because now what you have is the attorney making a case in point, the plaintiff attorney making a case in point for for change based on a stated policy and an expert witness having to provide the rationale for why that argument makes sense. The counter or the, the, the defendant attorney defends the status quo and uses their expertise two things. One is to support the contention of the defendant or to invalidate the claims of the plaintiff attorney. So you don't do that in cross-examination. You only do that in Mach 12.
0: Right. Yeah. and, And again, as you're talking, we're trying to kind of connect this to, you know, where I always think about, you know, when the, the jokes are even in the TV shows where kids are like, well, where am I gonna need algebra? When am I actually gonna need? And you find out that you actually do end up using it a lot um, as you do get older. Um, you know, there's, because I think, uh, because the theme will will revolve around a lot of civic leadership and community leadership, you know, these these NHIs are gonna be called to testify on local commissions about parks, library funding, you know, uh, some new effort at their alma mater in their neighborhood. Um, I I know we've been involved in some conversations of local citizens here in Central Texas about, you know, just a lot of the decisions being made about the development and growth. Um, This mock trial witness experience is a very real one. Because sometimes you might be the leader doing the questioning, but sometimes you may be called to be the expert and to help support some cause, some case. Uh, you know, you. I'm, I'm here on the board of a, a local nonprofit, and the way that arts funding is being distributed is very different, and the rules have recently changed. Um, and so we've had to try to find ways to, to get that those witness statements out to compel certain policies. Um, so it's not just playing pretend lawyer. I guess that's the 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 point is that this game of mock trial that we do to me is more than just, hey, for all the pretend lawyers out there, future you know, uh, judges, this is the game for you. No, this is a game for anybody. This is a life game, a yeah.
1: life game. Well, you know what's, what I love about or don't like about the great debate, the way it's been practiced is that you don't want the, the, uh, the expert witness to take over. And, and give a long related speech to some area of expertise and they take up all the time because that's strategically the purpose you know the expert witness has one role and that's to provide specific information related to the specific specific question under uh, to the specific issue under question but they're not supposed to sit there and consume time so that it, it Discombobulates the opposition, or or limits their time to respond because they took up all they sucked up all the oxygen, making an expert an expert case for something that's being argued. So we want to make sure that they that that our trainers don't do that because they've been doing that for the last several years, and it's it's, it's unethical. It needs to be pointed out, and maybe we can even forfeit a game. I mean a a, 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 a trial. Just on that basis, if you see that they're being trained to to strategically use time rather than to argue the point.
0: Well, again, these formats whether it, it, loses, is, it loses its purpose. Well, right, exactly, because even in again, and, and I've I've testified before a, a state education committee. Um, I've been on panels. Um, I've been a parent testifying at a at a school about particular school models. Um, everybody, you part of it is is that you you get your due time. It's how you use that time. So it's not really about like, God, oh, get rid of their time or got to weaken their time. Sure, if that's your tactic, but if your argument is so strong and your case is so strong, it should stand on its merits. You shouldn't need to play these tricks. Um, and I think good lawyers, you know, good leaders in the community that bring the right know how to use their time. Uh, and don't worry about having to do the uh, the tactical. Hey, there's a role and a place for it, I'm sure, <laughs> in everything. But I think we're more interested in seeing, uh, like you said, that exchange. An exchange well, between the the attorney and the witness and that, that back and forth. And what is the substance of that exchange that the other side's going to react to um, or that the judge should be compelled to rule in favor of?
1: We get accustomed as Latinos to argue with passion the moral right and the moral wrong
0: leave that to oratory <laughs> okay so take me there that that was a, you segwayed yourself you know because as as you remind us there's a place for that too there is a place
1: for that but the place is is to is to once again demonstrate the weakness in the counter argument and the consequence of the counter argument and why the proposal that's being delivered for pers- from a persuasion, the persuasion ought to be the advantages of the action that's being contemplated. For example, if you're going to argue the advantages of living at home, home going to college or leaving home and going to college and you're going to make an oratory statement behind that you can actually make an oratory statement that supports staying at home and living at home just as good as you can make an oratory statement that supports leaving home. If you, if you know what you're saying, if you know how to point out differences, if you're able to tell a mom or dad, I can, by staying home, I increase the income of our family. By staying home, I, I reduce the amount of labor everyday labor that would be that you would have to uh, take up I could I could help with grandma and grandpa I could take the I can help take my brothers and sisters to school I can save money for graduate school you can make a you can make a case for staying home through an impassioned speech or you can make or you can make an the same impassioned speech, or leaving home. By leaving home, I get to learn to be independent. I get to learn how to manage my money. I get to learn to, to live on my own. I get to learn. I get. To, I get to do things with my peer friends and learn from them. Anyway, so so the argument is not right or wrong, which is what I'm saying. It's not you don't love me, or you're just trying to control me, or... That's not the argument. And we we get trained. So if you do that on a policy board, you're going to get kicked off pretty quick, or they're going to stop listening to you. You know, I I won't say who it was, but I'll remember this NHR in the state, in the state house, arguing an issue and starts crying on the camera because she thought it was an immoral thing that that the legislature was doing, and, 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 and the person was right, and what the claim was, but the method used was not the appropriate method and the appropriate means of driving home the message. So the idea is to know what you're arguing and what you what situation you're in to make a selective choice of what's your best approach to support the idea and concept you're advocating for. In some cases, it may be cross-examination. In other cases, you may want to have someone who knows about that there as your witness. In other cases, it may be an impassioned speech. And in other cases, when it's extemp, you may have to construct on the run because you find yourself having to answer a critical question, what I mean on the run, uh, extemporaneously or in a vacuum or momentarily. And if you don't know how to construct that and deliver a message strongly, that's coherent and effective, you're going to lose the case or you're going to not make the point you wish to make. So extemporaneous argumentation is just as important as cross-sex or the other. So our goal is to expose these kids that it's just not one way of communicating. In our case, it's four ways of communicating. We're going to put you on the stage, we're going to put a microphone in your face, we're going to give you a theme to argue and we're going to watch you go. And you're going to be judged by your peers based on these points. That's an extraordinary experience that rarely does anyone ever get. Because you're being you're doing this in the stage of a couple of hundred people in the audience away from home, on your own. And everything that you do, the way you dress, the way you use your voice, the way you inflect, the way you, the drama you use, the way you, use questions, all of that goes into play automatically to the extent that, that you constantly have to be in control of what you're saying, very conscious of what you're saying and why you're saying that and why you're asking the question and what conclusion you want your opponent to come to.
0: So the idea is for them to concede your point. What do you see at the end of this? you know you, you you you've done this what a little what's a little uh foreshadowing for the parents for the kids even for the regions when it's all said and done
1: I'll come to, go, go at me again because you have that smirk on your face no just
0: like you know eight, four days six days what, what is the value training. of this No, well sure I, I think just you know, you've you've uh, you've been that you've had the fortunate uh, privilege to see this go down for so long. You know, you can kind of predict the future um, because it's intense, right? We uh, also, for a lot of students, these are we're we're still in a generation where a lot of students didn't didn't have a lot of chances the last few years to get out of town, get out of their home, be on a college campus. Um, we haven't been at Austin College. Uh, for for our Texas uh, members uh, since 2019, actually, that was the last time we were there. Um, they're going to get the themes, they get the topics, they go through these events, they learn about you know where where does it all end, you know where where are we taking them, where does the where does the magic carpet ride land?
1: That's a good question. You're going to be more in control of the outcomes you want. You're going to be able to see and gain information that you normally don't gain. You know, not, not everybody's sitting there playing with their poker cards looking at the opponent. We're very close-minded, very strategic. We're, we're, we're taught to play our cards close to our chest, which suggests the idea that we don't share a lot, that we do things on our own, that our private decisions should be private talk about a redundancy and that we strike at the moment that we want victory or where we see the advantage. Culturally, we're taught to kind of view it life that we live in a competitive society and that's the one-upsmanship. I'd rather live in a society in which I convince other people of the good that I'm doing or proposing and for them to support me and join me in that process rather than the other way that I just described. I'd rather know that I that people want to support the work of the National Hispanic Institute because of its goodness, because of its intent, because of its ideology, because of what it teaches, than because we want Latinos to overdo or overcome what other, other groups are doing or not doing. So that's where it comes into play, because once you get people know that we are intelligent, because we've always been intelligent, we're even more intelligent for tomorrow. Once we know that we have that confidence to self-determine and evaluate and ask the right questions about where we're going and why we're going there, and what's the outcome and how the outcome not only benefits me, but benefits others, then we're practicing that old concept we call community equity building, rather than social justice. The social justice movement I love, I participate in it, but it's a right and wrong movement. It's it's self righteous people being told you're wrong. And there's a lot of truth to that. Look at what's going on in today's politics. And and you can begin to see that it's not an open dialogue in American in American society. It is a very strategic, underhanded on both sides of the aisle. It's called the advantage. How do I gain the advantage? Well, you may gain the advantage, but you're also going to gain the disadvantage of a lot of resentment. So at the end of the day, what what do we want to teach our kids? We want to teach them to use language and ideas and concepts to generate enthusiastic support for things that benefit entire societies. At least, that's my take. And we also want them to be in in control of things they imagine because it belongs to them. That's why I love the work of NHI, because it's innovative, it's creative, it's modernistic, it's everything. you know, we're not arguing against anything that's going on right now. No, and we're, I, we're too busy shaping ourselves for tomorrow.
0: It's important. You know, I, um, this Monday, right. Cause it was, um, Sophia didn't have school. I'm going to, this is my wrap up. <laughs> uh, I brought her to the office and she could have stayed at home, but I brought her instead. Um, cause she didn't have school. And, you know, Monday was, was uh, was just super busy here, staff meeting. Um, she had some other things in the afternoon. We had some calls. Um, and so throughout the day, I'm seeing her just like taking scrap paper and gluing stuff, doing yep. stuff and inventing stuff. And, and I made a decision that I was like, I'm going to keep bringing her because if she would have been at home, she would have just been on YouTube or TV all day, like just yep. like a day off but I liked that she was just creative. She was more creative in the office, but again, right, she has scrap paper and markers and a blackboard, but as a parent, I knew that it's important for her to also create and, and invent, and even if it's just one day a month, just to have a opportunity to not just be in the concrete, because she's very good at that too, right? She, she learns the poems and the preamble and her math tests and her spelling words, but um, I was glad she had a day of just raw child creativity because you know we run out of those opportunities or we never learn them unfortunately now. So, uh, great debate is a great way to do that. Um, the next session we'll be having is uh, start to talk a little bit about each category's topic, um, as well as uh, adding to the library of conversations not just for great debate but other programs. Uh, and so, thank you, and uh, on to the I next I just want to say one thing before,
1: before we tune out. I want to say this to the kids. If you put in the time to mold yourself, to perform at the highest level possible, you're going to generate the benefits of your efforts. And you're going to enjoy changing and improving and working towards being ex- developing an expertise that very few people enjoy. If you put in the time, the great debate, to be at peak performance readiness, you're going to enjoy the experience. It's going to become a lifelong memory in your development. So what you get out of the great debate is what you sow. How much you invest? I told my two granddaughters one day who didn't win an award at the Great Debate as they were coming down the steps at the auditorium with a few tears in their eyes. Do you feel like you put in the time needed to compete at the very top? They said, no. I said, then why would you expect to be honored or to be appointed as one of the best participants? Why would you expect that? Don't expect things to come to you that you don't spend the time doing to perfection. You have this opportunity. Mom's not going to be there. Your dad's not going to be there. Your friends are not going to be there. But you're going to be there. And only you will know when you come back home whether you did the best you could to prepare yourself or you didn't. Only you will know that it will be your world of information. I'm betting that you're going to be so prepared that it's going to be one of the most memorable times of your lifetime. Thank you.